Welcome to Music History Monday for September 25th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is In a Class by Himself. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on September 25th, 1932, 91 years ago today, of the pianist Glenn Herbert Gold, G-O-L-D, in Toronto, Canada. Yes, the surname on Glenn Gould's birth certificate is Gold. When the young guy was seven years old, his family began informally using the surname Gould, though Glenn himself never formally changed his name from Gould to Gould. He died there in Toronto on October 4, 1982, at the age of 50. Superlatives cut two ways. I would observe that ordinarily when we refer to someone as being in a class by themselves, it is usually understood as a compliment that someone is one of a kind, unique, sui generis, without equal, and so forth. But in fact, superlatives such as these can cut two ways and are consequently not necessarily complementary in their entirety. For example, Tyrus Raymond Ty Cobb, 1886-1961. The so-called Georgia Peach was, as I trust we all know, a baseball player during the dead ball era, circa 1900-1920. He was a transcendent baseball genius. As you know, I do not use the G word, genius, lightly. He was truly one of a kind, unique, sui generis, without equal. At the time of his retirement from baseball in 1928, Ty Cobb held over 90 major league records. Today, 95 years later, he still holds a number of those records, including his lifetime batting average of 366, which is the highest ever, most batting titles over a career, 12, and for stealing home plate, which he did a total of 54 times. Cobb was also one of a kind for his demeanor both on and off the field. As a player, Intimidation was the name of his game, and he was a vicious, many even say demonic, competitor. And while the story that he sharpened his spikes in order to injure opposing players may not be true, he was despised by most of his contemporaries for what were considered his head games, his cheap shots, and his generally unsportsmanlike play. Cobb was trouble wherever he went. He was, despite the denials of apologists, a notorious racist. He assaulted a heckler named Claude Lucker in the stands 
at Hilltop Park in New York City, for which he was suspended. For our information, Hilltop Park was the nickname of a park in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan, where the New York Yankees, then known as the Highlanders, played from 1903 to 1912. He got into drunken brawls in bars and in hotels and on the street, not infrequently spending the night after in a jail cell. He once beat the living daylights out of an umpire named Billy Evans after a game. In June 1914, Cobb pleaded guilty to disturbing the peace after pulling out a revolver during an argument in the Detroit butcher shop, for which he was fined $50. On August 13, 1912, Cobb was stabbed in the back during a street brawl just before a game. He refused to tell anyone what had happened and went on to play, going two for three with two singles and a run scored, raising his batting average to 418. One of a kind. According to Benjamin Klein, writing in Bleacher Report in 2014, quote, Ty Cobb is hands down the worst human being to ever play in Major League Baseball, and it's not even that close. Cobb is the most hated baseball player of all time, period, unquote. Yeah, Ty Cobb was indeed one of a kind, unique, sui generis, without equal, for reasons both very good and very bad. The same competitive ferocity that made him great also made him a most controversial player and human being. Glenn Gould, one of a kind. Which brings us to our remarkable birthday boy, Glenn Gould. Like Tyrus Cobb, Gould was a complicated and contrary man of preternatural talent and abilities, one of a kind, unique, sui generis, without equal for reasons both very good and not so very good. Let us state for the record, up front, that Glenn Gould never brandished a gun in a butcher shop or routinely sucker-punched people at bars. Nevertheless, his shamelessly bad attitude towards the music of Mozart, Chopin, Liszt, and Schumann is, to my mind, the musical equivalent of sliding sharpened cleats high into the face of a catcher. Admittedly, not one of us is perfect and each of us carries a bit of Mr. Hyde within us. We are, after all, only human. But Glenn Gould's genius for piano, like Ty Cobb's for baseball, was a function of both a good side and a frankly self-destructive side. Our job for the duration of this post will be to observe the quirks, complexities, and emotional darkness that drove Glenn Gould to become the one of a kind that he was. Know that we will return to Glenn Gould in Dr. Bob Prescribes next week on October 3rd. Life and career in brief. Glenn Gould's life and career are easy enough to outline. Born into a well-to-do family, his over-the-top musical precocity was recognized 
and nurtured by his mother, who was a piano teacher. He entered the Royal Conservatory of Music, today the Toronto Conservatory, at the age of 10. He graduated at 13. He made his debut with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra playing Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4 when he was 13. He played his first major solo recital at 15 and performed his first radio recital on CBC at 18. In June of 1955, at the age of 23, Gould made his recording debut with Columbia Records when he recorded Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variations at Columbia's 30th Street Studio in New York City. The album was released in January 1956, and it was a sensation. It became Columbia's best-selling classical album ever, and it launched Gould's international concert career. It was a recording that changed my life when I first heard it, and in this I know I'm not alone. Gould's was a dazzling, triumphant concert career, though it didn't last for very long. He performed fewer than 200 concerts in total before retiring from the stage in 1964 at the age of 32. He spent the remaining 18 years of his life shacked up in a recording studio, recording and then editing his performances. In the process, he created an almost unparalleled body of recorded work. He died on October 4, 1982, after suffering a massive stroke. Glenn Gould and Existential Loneliness Glenn Gould was an otherworldly musical genius, but he was also crazy. Some observers would have us believe that he was merely an eccentric, but his issues with misanthropy, depression, drug abuse, and at the root of it all, his existential loneliness, were frankly much more bizarre and ultimately self-destructive than anything we might call simple eccentricity. Gould wasn't made crazy by his musical genius, and he wasn't a musical genius because he was crazy. No, his particular musical genius and his craziness were one and the same, something that separated him almost from the beginning of his life from his fellow human beings. Gould's withdrawal from the concert stage at the age of 32 wasn't simply a matter of not liking or wanting to travel and or concertize. No, he truly came to believe that performing before an audience was endangering his physical and spiritual health. He explained it this way, quote, I detest audiences, not in their individual components, but en masse. I detest audiences. I think they're a force of evil. It seems to me rule of mob law, unquote. A force of evil? Really? He attempted to rationalize his cutting himself off from the larger musical community by saying that, quote, if an artist wants to use his mind for creative work, cutting oneself off from society is a necessary thing, unquote. 
At another time, he put it this way, quote, isolation is the one sure way to human happiness, unquote. Well, ouch. Reading Gould's biographies, and there are two superb ones, one by Otto Friedrich, Random House, 1989, and Peter Ostwald, Norton, 1997. We are struck over and over again by Gould's uncanny otherness, his apartness, his singularity, his loneliness. As a child, his prodigious talent and total immersion in music, along with his budding hypochondria and fear of hurting his fingers, he refused to catch anything thrown to him, alienated him from his classmates, whose roughhousing terrified him. Parenthetically, having personally grown up in a house with brothers, roughhousing was the name of the game. According to Anthony T. DeBenedet, M.D., and Lawrence J. Cohen, Ph.D., writing in their book, The Art of Roughhousing, Good Old-Fashioned Horseplay and Why Every Kid Needs It, quote, play, especially active physical play like roughhousing, makes kids smart, emotionally intelligent, lovable and likable, ethical, physically fit, and joyful." Unquote. But roughhousing is all about physical contact, which was something that Glenn Gould could never, ever tolerate. In 1959, the 27-year-old Gould visited Steinway Hall in New York City. William Hupfer, the chief piano technician, greeted Gould with a collegial slap on the back. Gould was shocked out of his skivvies at having been touched and immediately began to complain of pain, fatigue, and a lack of coordination because of what he called the incident. Gould went so far as to contemplate suing Steinway if his injuries turned out to be permanent. They were not. Neuroses and Fears Gould's neuroses and his fears verged into the paranoid. Is paranoid too strong a word? No, it is not. Here's another thing Glenn Gould said about playing live in front of audiences. Quote, There's a very curious and and almost sadistic lust for blood that overcomes the concert listener, and there's a waiting for it to happen, a waiting for the horn to fluff, a waiting for the strings to become ragged, a waiting for the conductor to forget the subdivide, you know? And it's dreadful." Unquote. It sounds as if Gould is describing the crowd at a gladiatorial event and not a concert audience. Speaking for myself, I do not attend concerts in order to hear musicians crash and burn. And I'd hazard that no one reading or hearing this post does so either. Gould has not here described the average concert listener, but rather his own paranoia and fear of making mistakes. Back to Gould's neuroses and his fears. From childhood on, he had a morbid fear of germs, 
which was another reason he shunned physical contact with his fellow human beings. As an adult, he hated shaking hands. He hated crowds and being in any contained space with other people, whether it was a concert hall or an airplane. The sound of a cough or a sneeze would send him running for his life. We are reminded here of the elderly Howard Hughes, who spent his last years wasting away in hermetically sealed hotel suites in Las Vegas, not unlike the way Gould sealed himself inside his recording studio. However, unlike Howard Hughes, who was famously pansexual, Gould was considered by most everyone who knew him to be asexual. For many years, it was assumed that he had died a virgin. According to his friend, the pianist and harpsichordist Greta Strauss, quote, He could not accept love. I had the feeling that any expression of affection would cause him to panic. Well, that's a sick mind, isn't it? Unquote. In fact, Gould did not die a virgin. In 2007, Cornelia Foss, the wife of the conductor and composer Lucas Foss, came forward and admitted to having had a lengthy affair with Gould. She moved to Toronto to be closer to him, and it was there that she witnessed firsthand his paranoid outbursts that he was being poisoned and spied on. She described the first such episode she witnessed in an interview printed on August 25, 2007, in the Toronto Star. Quote, It, his paranoid fit, lasted several hours, and then I knew he was not just neurotic. There was more to it. Unquote. Gould constantly complained of being cold. He habitually cocooned himself in heavy clothing, coat, scarf, hat, and gloves, even in the warmest weather. His clothing once caused him to be arrested for vagrancy in Sarasota, Florida. He was sitting on a park bench in his full winter garb, and the local gendarmes assumed that he was a tramp. Gould's overabundance of outerwear was yet another way he sealed himself off from the world around him. Opinions Glenn Gould could be a brilliant and devastatingly funny conversationalist. Unfortunately, far more often than not, we are told by those who knew him that conversations with him usually devolved into lengthy stream-of-consciousness monologues during which Gould would purposely make the most outlandish, really even ridiculous, statements. Did he make them for effect? Or did he really believe them? For example, Gould was known for his trashing of Mozart and his music, famously asserting that, quote, Mozart died too late rather than too soon, unquote. At another time, Gould opined about Mozart this way, quote, Oh, I love the early sonatas. I love the early Mozart, period. I'm really fond of that moment when he was either emulating Haydn or Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach or anyone but himself. The moment he found himself as 
conventional wisdom would have it, at the age of 18 or 19 or 20, I stopped being interested in him." Unquote. Gould went so far as to record a video entitled How Mozart Became a Bad Composer in 1968, in which, using Mozart's irreproachable piano concerto in C minor, Kerschel 491 of 1786, as an example, he purports to demonstrate just why and how Mozart was a bad composer. A few years ago, I spent an entire The Doctor Is In Zoom session dismantling Gould's premises in the video, which are both absurd and dishonestly presented. When we return to Gould and Dr. Bob Prescribes on October 3rd, it will be with this anti-Mozart video as well as Gould's ironically superb recording of the complete Mozart piano sonatas. Mozart wasn't the only notable composer Gould dismissed out of hand. He claimed that, quote, Chopin, Schubert, and Liszt had no idea of how to write for the piano, unquote. When Gould found out that his friend and future biographer Peter Ostwald was writing a biography of Robert Schumann, he said, quote, Why such an inferior musician? You know very well that I cannot stand Schumann's music. If it wasn't for that clever little wife of his who managed to perform all those dreadfully mediocre compositions of his, we wouldn't know that he ever existed, unquote. With statements like these, and many other like critical ejaculations, we are compelled to ask questions. Did Glenn Gould really believe this stuff? Or was he just playing the role of provocateur? Or as a musician, was he jealous of the ordinarily unassailable reputations of Mozart, Schubert, Chopin, Liszt, and Schumann? Or in his hermetically sealed world, had Gould simply become untethered from reality? Had his incipient craziness gotten the better of him? The Bernstein-Brahms story. This famous story bears telling for the light it sheds on the egos of both Glenn Gould and Leonard Bernstein, 1918 to 1990. It happened on April 6, 1962, at a concert of the New York Philharmonic conducted by Bernstein. The orchestra was about to perform Johannes Brahms's Piano Concerto in D minor with Glenn Gould as the soloist. Before beginning the concerto, Bernstein turned to the audience and informed them that he was not responsible for what they were about to hear. It seems that Gould had insisted on performing the first movement at half the speed Brahms indicated. Bernstein rhetorically asked the audience, quote, In a concerto, who is the boss, the soloist or the conductor? The answer is, of course, sometimes the one and sometimes the other, depending on the people involved, unquote. For our information, in the score, Brahms merely indicates the movement be performed maestoso, majestically. 
But we as a musical community have known exactly how fast to play it from the moment of the concerto's premiere in Hanover on January 2nd, 1859, during which Brahms himself was the soloist. The proper tempo is Brahms's tempo, and Gould insisted on performing that first movement at half of Brahms's tempo. Now, please, back to Bernstein's question, quote, in a concerto, who is the boss, the soloist or the conductor, unquote? The correct answer is neither. The composer is the boss. By insisting on playing the first movement of Johannes Brahms's Piano Concerto No. 1 at half speed, Gould elevated himself far above Brahms's score, making the music about himself and not about its composer, which is, to my mind, the single greatest sin a performer can commit. This, in my eyes, is the musical equivalent of Ty Cobb punching out and choking an umpire. Conclusion Taken together, Gould's seemingly endless phobias and anxieties, his hypochondria and over-reliance on both prescription and non-prescription pharmaceuticals, his apparent and nonsensical rejection of some of the very best piano music ever composed, along with his fear of intimacy and human contact, altogether constitute a degree of loneliness that is hard to even imagine. According to Gould's biographer, the psychiatrist and violinist Peter Ostwald, 1928-1996, who, as we have observed, was a personal friend of Glenn Gould's, and, I'm proud to say, was a friend of mine as well, Gould's mind fell within the autism spectrum. Was Gould autistic? Did he have Asperger's? Perhaps, and perhaps not. But such a diagnosis does not change the fact that the same genetic predispositions and skill sets that made Glenn Gould one of the greatest and most compelling musicians of our time also made him one of the loneliest people of all time, which tinges his memory with sadness. To no one does the cliché, the loneliness of genius, better apply. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.